We're continuing a series called Maximizing Impact in a Post-Christian Culture. Now, we could uh, break into small groups and debate to what degree we're in a post-Christian culture, but we're on a slope. And arguably, we're not only in a post-Christian culture, we're looking at an anti-Christian culture. And so this becomes more and more relevant. How do we maximize our impact as we seem to be more and more marginalized culturally, um, in some ways ostracized culturally? And uh, today we're going to talk about a subject that I know is near and dear to every one of us, and that's work. How do we maximize our impact at work? And boys and girls, teenagers, if you're checking in on this sermon, at least for starters, your work is your school. Okay, let's just pretend that's the, con- the connection. Two passages of the day, and I'd like you to try to connect the dots between the two. One was written 1,500 years before the other. The first is Exodus 19, 1 to 6. The second is 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And Kevin Stellingworth's going to be reading for us. Kev, if you would step up and uh, prepare. And what we do here is we stand, if you're able, face the middle of the room. It's one of those holy moments. We believe Scripture is is uh, central to who we are as followers of Jesus, and hopefully it's central to your life. Kevin, when you're ready, Exodus 19 and then 1 Peter 2. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped from there in the desert in the front of the mountains. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord came to him from the mountains and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be treasured possessions, although the whole earth is mine. You will be... For me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Second, First Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who call you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are people of God once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Good deal. Thanks a lot, Kevin. You can have a seat. Again, the, the conversation line of this series is how can we make a greater impact in our circles of influence Given the fact that if we claim to be Christians, Christ followers today, there seems to be a dismissive attitude, almost an an oppositional attitude towards us because of the stances we take as Christ followers, because of our uh, desire to reach others with the good news of the gospel, which obviously is not politically correct these days. And so the, the challenge is not, is not to develop a hostility towards the world because we don't want to oppose the world, but we want to transform it. That's the role of people who claim to be followers of Jesus. And I just want to say, uh, we're giving the volunteers a week off. So we've got boys and girls in here. We've got teenagers in here. And as I said before, boys and girls, you get to start school this week. And that's so cool. That's so exciting. Do you know that my mom and dad gave me $1,000 for every A that I got when I was growing up? <laughs> just, just trying to help. Now, that's not true, but I'm just trying to help. 
And I never got an A anyway, so it really didn't matter. You're looking at a lifetime 2.7, which for those of you, that's a B, I'm a B minus guy. Ask me a question, you'll get a B minus answer. That's me. One plus one is two, and two plus two is four. And, and you know you learn that one day, and some of you are going to learn that this year, and then you learn multiplication and division and algebra, some of you. And some of you will go a different direction educationally at that moment in time. Um, and then you'll keep going to school more and more. And then you'll grow up someday. And then you're going to get a job just like your mom and dad. And you'll be overpaid, uh, underpaid and overworked. And, and that's the rest of your life. That's kind of the way it works. So boys and girls, go to school this week and have fun. Um, it's what we did, right? We paid our dues. Some of you are retired some of you are having a great time in life. You paid your dues. This message doesn't really apply to you anymore. And you're sitting there, man, am I glad this doesn't apply to me. And quite frankly, I'm not sure how it applies to you. You're going to have to figure that out on your own. But for most of us in this room, considering students as workers uh, and those, the rest of you that haven't retired, what do you do at work that can maximize your effectiveness and impact uh, for Christ. That's the, the chat today. And I would argue that it's primarily not about how you do your work or where you do your work. It's about your identity as you approach your work, our work. And I want to just point out before we launch into this historical perspective of really the traditional issue. It was a uh, modern issue. It's a postmodern issue. It's a post-Christian issue. And it's something that maybe you, uh, I know I have struggled with this, quite frankly, through the years. And the traditional issue regarding work is losing our identity in our work. I don't know if that's an issue for you, but when my work begins to shape how I feel about myself, um, and I wanted to uh, just read to you a quote uh, from author, pastor Tim Keller. And what's cool about this quote, and you'll see it in a minute, is that he shared in an interview on MSNBC's Morning Joe show this perspective on work. Check it out. He said, when you make your work your identity, if you're successful, it destroys you because it goes to your head. If you're not successful, it destroys you because it goes to your heart. It destroys your self-worth. Faith in Christ gives you an identity that's not in work, in work or accomplishment, and that gives you insulation against the weather changes. If you're successful, you stay humble. If you're not successful, you have some ballast. Then this line I thought was really profound. Work is a great thing when it's a servant instead of a lord. I just want you to rest on that last line and ask yourself, to what degree is your work a servant or is it your Lord? One of the major transitions we're going to make when we start taking our faith seriously as a follower of Jesus is that what begins to matter most, what begins to matter most is who I am in Christ, not who I am at work not who I am in my social circles, the status or prestige that I used to think was so crucial to my self-identity. It's about how I obey Jesus. It's how I fulfill his plan in my life, how I relate to others on his behalf. 
And that's where we want to start in this teaching on work this morning. I want you to take a historical jaunt with me. Uh, background 3,500 years. We won't take this year by year in case you're concerned about lunch now. But I want you to go back with me early to the Old Testament, and it begins with this premise. Our identity, in particular this morning, our identity is designed to be shaped by God's calling. What frames our approach and understanding about work is our, my willingness, our willingness to embrace our work as part of our calling from God. Let me talk to you about identity, Old Testament style. The people of Israel were originally called to be a kingdom of priests. If you listen to the first passage Kevin uh, read this morning, that was the gist of it. And originally, one of the original 12 tribes of Israel called the Levites were called to serve as priests. They were appointed to be in charge of the tabernacle and eventually the temple. What they did, quite frankly, practically, each day is they were uh, butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers. They just did it for God with deep, deep meaning associated with it. They were responsible for the worship life of the congregation. And they functioned in that role. They were really part of the spiritual leadership of Israel. And, and this is crucial because this is where our identity is shaped early on. The Levites served and honored God on behalf of the people and served and blessed the people on God's behalf. They served with a deep sense of commitment, a deep sense of gratitude and joy. And what God did on Mount Sinai, the passage Kevin first passage Kevin read, God brought this word to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai from Exodus 19 again. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a what? A kingdom of priests. There would still be a tribe responsible for the worship life of the temple. But now everyone, everyone, Men, women, and children would be considered members of this kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And God's design for his people early, all of his people, all of the 12 tribes, is that they would serve a priestly function, blessing people and honoring God with the same reverence as the Levites as they approached their work in the tabernacle and temple. Fast forward 1,500 years to the New Testament, the New Testament roots of our identity. Followers of Jesus are also called to be members of a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And I want you to do is, you'll see in this next slide, I think there's two passages, um, and, and the Old Testament passage and the New Testament passage, the first from Exodus 19. But now look at the 1 Peter 2 passage that says, you're a chosen people, a what? You are, you are, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's speaking to the church now. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Take a look at those two passages and you see the parallel, you see the similarity. Almost from day one, when God selected a people, he declares that they would be special, blessing God on behalf of the people and blessing people on behalf of God. It was the identity of God's people then and is to this very day. Now, let me fast forward 1,500 years after Jesus lived 
to the, something called the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. Some of you visiting today, uh, this is a Reformed church. You're saying, what's that? That's our roots. We come out of the, something called the Protestant Reformation. We stole the name Reformed. And in the Reformation, one of the main principles of the Reformation, which, by the way, celebrates its 500th anniversary this fall, was something called the priesthood of believers. And it's one of the significant principles that Martin Luther, guys like John Calvin, and other reformers proposed. Get this, that every believer, not just an elite few, has the right to proclaim God's word and celebrate his presence with each believer. Every believer has the ability to intercede in prayer for one another. Any believer can bring a blessing to another believer and bless their circle of influence. Any believer, says the priesthood of believers, can bless God and represent people before God, intercede before God, and then bless people on behalf of God. Now, that doesn't rock your world, but it rocked the world of the pre-Reformation church. So other authors in the New Testament says, say words like these in Hebrews 13, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Romans 12, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Everything the Levitical priests literally did in an earthly temple, believers can now practice in their daily faith. We can offer sacrifices of praise. That's what you just did when you, stand, you stood to sing. We can intercede before God on behalf of others and bring the blessings of God back to people. Now, it's interesting, and here's the, here's the point of departure. Prior to the Reformation, only two vocations were claimed to have the divine blessing and divine calling. Two professions were stated there, there could be a divine calling. The rest, you're just mere commoners, mere workers. What were the two professions? Calling to be a priest and calling to be a nun you were specifically and specially ordained by God into those two vocations. The rest of you, whatever you did, were not called to your workplace. When they went to work, they were called into their positions. When you go to work, you just go to work. And the, the Reformation made the claim, which was, again, back to Scripture, that everyone's been called into this priesthood, this royal priesthood, regardless of the pr profession, the vocation you pursue. The idea of calling was fundamentally redefined. And so when you go to work, you go to work as a result of your calling. And your identity there is not as a worker, a, a, a coworker, a boss, or an employee. Do you know who you are when you show up for work tomorrow? You, my friends, are worker priests. Boys and girls, teenagers, when you start school this week and the weeks to come, you are student priests and priestesses. And so Colossians says on more than one occasion in more than one way, this is Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Friends, you're worker priests. Some of you are retired worker priests. Need to figure that out. 
I want you to think back to Friday morning if you were working and you pulled into the office, you uh, drove onto the farm or the, went into the dairy barn or whatever it was, and when you walked in the door, what was your first emotion? What was the first thing you thought when you got to work Friday? What are you thinking tomorrow is going to be? Did you say, here I am, worker priest? No, I don't think, oh, geez, it's Friday. Thank goodness it's Friday. Tomorrow's Monday. There's a lot of us that aren't here today because we're working. We just go to work. And it's so important to recognize that our identity, first and foremost on the job, is the identity that God has called us into as worker, priest, a tradition that goes back all the way to Mount Sinai and arguably beyond. Acting on God's behalf, or in our case, on behalf of the cause of Jesus. So that quality work that you're accomplishing is an offering to God. It's a... that. You're becoming a blessing to that less than stellar co-worker, that employer, that boss, on behalf of Jesus. You're the worker priest. Years ago, I got invited uh, uh, by John Skilder to, uh, he challenged me to preg check a cow. Now, I don't have pictures and I'm not going to get into details. I'm a city boy. I wasn't even sure what that meant. I know what that means now. And so the next trip his vet took to the dairy, I went out there and participated in preg-checking one cow. I don't know how that guy did it. That's all I'm going to say about that. I checked that off my career list right about then. But that guy is not a vet. He's a worker priest. And you can have fun with this one after church with your friends, but I'm suggesting that position in life, that occupation is as holy, as sacred, in spite of what he does with different ends of animals as what I'm doing up here today. And I know some of you will struggle with this because somehow this feels loftier than what you're doing. It's just not true. Again, that's a fascinating discussion of what culture has done elevating this position, again, at the expense of yours. We keep doing that for a variety of reasons. It's a fascinating discussion. But there is nothing holier about what I do than what you do. Based upon 2,000 years of biblical history and God's word. You are worker priests. And I think we need to come to terms with that. Uh, Boys and girls, when you start school this week, You are not just a second or third grader. You are not a seventh grader. You're not a sophomore in high school. You are a student priest. Ask your folks what that really means when you get home. But when you're studying, you're studying, and and when you study the way you should study, it's it's like an offering to God. You don't have to give him money. You just give him your homework. And when that boy or girl, when that fellow seventh grader is standing on the outside looking in, of your group because you're cool and they're not. If you're the one to reach out to them and cross the line and say, hey, here's a few people I'd like you to meet. You are a student priest. You are blessing them because God has blessed you. Honestly, it's a really big deal. It's the most, I would argue, most understated principle in most of the things we talk about in this place. We just think we're going to work. 
We just think we're looking for a new work. We just think we're retiring. It's, it's much more than that when we reframe our identity. If there's an area many of us compartmentalize, it's work. We come to church, we do this, this spiritual thing, we may even have a devotional life, we may do the good stuff, then we get to work and somehow it doesn't translate because the bottom line at work is profit margin, not priesthood. And so we find ourselves sliding in alignment with industry standards, not the standard of a worker priest, not the standard of morality of Scripture. It isn't just a job, folks, it's your calling. I'm not saying it's going to be easier at one level. Some jobs just simply stink. <laughs> and using that word, is, it's a mild term. My first job was Uncle Jim's Tasty Twirl in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It was the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, think Dairy Queen in the ghetto, and you're close. And man, we had, it was a racially torn period of history in our country, and we had race-related riots continually. Right across the street was a furniture store, and the guy who owned the store shot and killed an African-American high school kid for ripping something off. And if you know what that era was like, you don't do that without repercussions. And so one night I called the cops because there was a near riot happening across the street. I was robbed once. I worked 5 to 11 p.m. by myself. Um, it was scary. I, my dad came to pick me up. I couldn't walk home. That'd be stupid. That's my first job. That's a treat. You know what's even better? I did it for minimum wage. And then I got a nickel raise. Of course, back then it was like doubling your earnings. So um, I wish my folks, I love my folks, still love my folks. I wish someone had told me I wasn't just going to work at Uncle Jim's Tasty Twirl. I was going to represent God as a worker priest. And I don't know if it would have changed how I dispensed the vanilla into the cone or gotten the hot dogs out of the world. I don't know. But I would have understood there was something more at stake than just what I was doing. It was who I was becoming, how I was blessing the people that came to purchase my product. Man, I have such a heart for fast food employees. Pray for them. Be kind to them. Because for most of them, they think it's just a job. And it's not the best job in the world, just so you know. Now, knocking it, but it's not the greatest job. Worker, priest. What's your identity? What do you bring to the table at work? Well, our identity shapes the entire equation. Now, let me just speak briefly about three implications, um, three priorities, this post-Christian workplace priorities uh, in, in three realms, in three areas. First of all, what's the attitude going to be of someone who now perceives himself as worker priest? Well, and Chuck launched this last week. My attitude as a worker priest is prioritizing my role as an ambassador rather than an antagonist. And I don't want to offend you implying everyone here is antagonistic in your work. That's not the point. But these days, as Christians in a post-Christian world, I hear a lot of angst. I hear a lot of conflicting conversations. We have chips on our shoulders these days because the world seems to be attacking us. The culture is attacking us. And then Chuck read us this passage that is so relevant for our post-Christian, perhaps anti-Christian experience. 2 Corinthians 5 says, we are therefore Christ's antagonists. No. 
You, my friends, the worker priests, are his ambassadors in the workplace. Get this, it's as though God is making his appeal through us. See, that's the role of the priest as intermediary between God and his people. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Someday, if you come out of the closet at work as a Christ follower, let alone a worker priest, you'll find yourself perhaps having to defend some stances on moral issues. You're going to have to be, uh, withstand the accusations of being intolerant, narrow-minded, and simplistic. Don't be defensive. Don't punch back verbally. Because an ambassador for Jesus is dignified. He understands the end game, the goal. There's a compassion towards people that is in rarer, rarer and rarer commodity. Instead of drawing lines in the sand, an ambassador looks for common ground. It's not just telling someone their business, but speaking the truth. How? In love. Your priestly role is to bless those people, those employees, that boss, those customers on God's behalf. You were placed in that role. You thought to perhaps correct someone, to pay someone or be paid. It goes much farther than that. In this post-Christian environment, you likely be in the minority on many of your views and perspectives. But honor God in the stances and the way you take your stances. Uh, bless others in how you express your stance to them. You're an ambassador. So that's kind of the fundamental attitude, I would argue, in this post-Christian scene called work. The second uh, priority is the issue of our quality of work. And I would suggest prioritizing excellence over mediocrity. Um, this is a, pro- a Proverbs statement, 22, Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see someone skilled in their work? They'll serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. That generally, historically, is the primary motivator. If we do our work well, we expect to climb a ladder somewhere, somehow, gain a greater in, in, uh, income. But in a post-Christian culture, in many places now, we're no longer uh, able to share our faith. It's literally illegal or at worst, it's, it's frowned upon to communicate our faith. Then what becomes our witness is the quality of our work. And I'd like to tell you today that when I hear about our work, your vocation, the people, every time I hear your name mentioned, it's about the great quality of your work. You buy that? Wouldn't it be amazing if one of the testimonies, the witness of the church was, oh yeah, I know he's a Christ follower because his quality of work is excellent. It's excellent. That perhaps is the post-Christian witness in the workplace. One of the quickest ways to discredit Christ in the workplace is for us to do our work with less than excellence. And I would argue in order to earn the right to be heard these days for many of you businessmen, businesswomen, it's how you do your work and the competence, the excellence that you accomplish it with. There's a third area that I think becomes even more crucial today than has been in the previous generations, and that's our trustworthiness. And just 
put here, practice unwavering, not selective integrity. I'm an X, I'm a B minus sociology major, okay, from many years ago. One thing I love to do is study uh, statistical analysis. And for many, many years now, I've been studying the distinction between Christians and non-Christians in America. In particular, when we study the distinction between Christian workers and non-Christian workers, do you know what the distinction is in our quality, in our integrity in work, at work? Eh, not much. Several years ago, the Wall Street Journal partnered with the Gallup organization to do another survey. And the researchers measured a wide variety of moral and ethical behavior in the workplace, such as calling in when not sick, uh, cheating on income tax, pilfering, not major supplies, but those minor supplies that no one will ever miss for personal use. And the researchers found, guess what? There's no difference. There's no difference. And we want to maximize our impact in a post-Christian culture? Unwavering trustworthiness. A worker, priest, is trustworthy, demonstrates integrity regardless of the industry standard. I understand, again, I've heard enough about the slippery slope of industry standards. The the industry sets the standard. It's so tempting to comply with the industry standard. But now we're worker priests. And we will go the extra mile. It will cost us literally dollars and cents. It will not cost your reputation. You remember the story? Boys and girls, remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den? It's a really cool story. Um, Big people, do you remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den? Remember the scene of the lions, the angel? Do you know what put Daniel in the lion's den? Workplace-related conflict. No joke. Check this out. Daniel chapter 6. Now, Daniel to dis, was so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps. That's just another good word for administrators or bosses, satraps. By his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to found, find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But get this, they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was what, what, and what. You see that? They wanted to pin him down because this Jewish kid was getting in the way of their own advancement career-wise. But he was absolutely, relentlessly, unwaveringly trustworthy. Neither was he corrupt nor negligent, meaning it was quality work that Daniel performed. So this is what happens. And I would argue this was a post-Christian culture. Now, again, it was in Babylon. It was a Jewish situation. But understand, um, this really was similar to what we will experience, post-Christian culture. His co-workers were, were jealous. They couldn't find anything wrong. So they set him up to compromise his faith. Hey, everyone needs to pray to the king. Pray to the king now. That's the, that's the workplace rule. That's the industry standard. And yet Daniel was intent on living out his faith in such a way that he would never compromise. He was going to honor God. He was a worker priest. Well, without the term really being invoked, he was a worker priest. And he was attacked. And so you know where he ended up? 
in lion's den with literal lions. Now understand this, if you're unwaveringly honest and trustworthy, you may end up in a lion's den too, not with literal lions, but you get the point. But when we're going to make the maximum impact in a post-Christian day in the workplace, you will stand out in many of the industries that we have represented here today. Um, It's not primarily about what you do or how you do it. It's about who we believe we are as we approach our work or our school. And I would love for you to consider, if you haven't before, consider seeing your job, your workplace environment as a calling of God into a role of worker-priest. You are honoring God by bringing the best of what you can to him and blessing the people around you on behalf of this Jesus who we have been called to serve. I just want to leave you with this question. We'll call it quits here. Think about your work. Some of you are about to head back within the hour, certainly most of us within the day. How do I live out my unique calling as a follower of Jesus in my role as worker-priest? What will that look like for you? Let's pray. Father, assembled in this room is such a variety of occupations. White-collar professionals, blue-collar professionals, farmers, dairy workers, dairy owners. We have a variety of of occupations represented in this room. And what if, what if everyone here this morning made a commitment to no longer just go to work, but upon their next entrance into the workplace to go on behalf of the God we worship and serve, on behalf of this Jesus who called us to be salt and light. Lord, I would pray for your spirit to bless and to empower us in ways we have to see to believe as we renew our commitment to making a difference in the marketplace. For the boys and girls and teenagers in this room, Lord, don't just allow them to be students. Going to class, going through the motions again, God, allow them to sense they have such an important role with the boys and girls around them in their offerings of homework and test-taking and participation in the schools they're about to launch into again. God, allow us to see ourselves as worker priests, as student priests, not working for men or women or corporations or institutions, but as just working for you. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.